Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Well, good morning, South Valley. Uh, I hope you've had a good two weeks. Uh, Janet Brown and I were in Kenya, and we were having our faith tested a little as some stuff went down in Nairobi, and then we were also celebrating with Faraha as they officially opened their 250-bed dormitory. We got some photographs. Uh, so this is the team that was with us, some guys from Nevada, some San Francisco, and then obviously from the valley. And you can see it's an overcast day there in Nairobi. And uh, I don't know if you can see it, but behind it, there's a big Johnny Walker sign for whiskey. It's a, every time we take that picture, it's like, that's the wrong backdrop, folks, but it's always there, okay? Uh, and then in the middle there with the red cap on, that's Ben. He's the guy that keeps us safe. And he's been a friend for 13, 14 years. And then the other African-American or African guy sitting three in from the right is uh, Patrick McGuera, one of our consultants. And uh, it was a good team that, that we had there. So next picture, mind you, however, here's the dormitory, okay? And uh, this one in the next picture, you'll see it. Uh, and we're just excited that it's here. It's called the Hummingbird. And I'll tell you why it's called the Hummingbird. It's called the Hummingbird after a famous Kenyan story writer by the name of uh, Wangari Mathai. And she was, uh, I think, the only Nobel Peace Prize winner from Kenya. And she wrote this immense little story about uh, a little hummingbird that did all, of it, all, of, all that it could to save this precious forest from burning. And the idea behind it is even the littlest, if they do their best, can make a huge difference. And so they decided to call the whole dormitory the hummingbird. And uh, it's pretty cool. And, you know, the reason why we have this is because of these kids. And you guys know these kids. And there's the little ones that will grow up and eventually get to high school. And they're drinking their porridge, which we hope that by the summer that porridge is fortified. Because just now it's just like slop. Uh, but hopefully it's going to get fortified. And, you know, they're just cute kids, aren't they? Uh, and we just love the fact that they've got a future and you guys are a big part of that future by helping that dormitory happen. And they will maybe get their first bed when they reach high school. And they'll have the joy of studying and learning and uh, growing up and living out their dreams. And unlike this kid who isn't yet in school and can't get access to school. And our hope is in 2021, in talking to, in talking to the Faraha leaders, that a second Faraha happens elsewhere in the slum. And we start a preschool and a nursery and... Uh, that's 2021 vision. And yeah, you can see what the slum is like in this last picture. If you've never been, uh, can we go to that last picture? Maybe not. We going to that? Are we? Do we have a last picture? We should have a last picture. But that's a good picture. Let's just leave it on that one, okay? Uh, let's just leave it on that one and just pray for the number of children that's still to be reached with love and care and the hope of Christ. And uh, Faraha send their best wishes, and in a couple of weeks, uh, David filmed a short message to you guys, and we'll have that over there. And then, when I come out of Kenya, I always take three days in Scotland. Uh, oh, there's the last picture. Yeah, you can. What I can't do is, I can't bottle the smell and bring it back, and I wish I could, because that's what people are living in, day in, day out in Haruma, and that's just a common scene as you walk, and uh, yeah. So I leave that, 
And I go for three days to Scotland on my way home and to see my dad. And it's a tonic for my soul. And it reminds me of what heaven will look like. Yeah. And we'll all sound like that as well, just so you know. And it's good when I've been gone that Seth's been preaching and Frank's been preaching. And good to know that some of you guys have stepped forward to serve in Porterville and help launch SVP, South Valley Porterville. And, well, two or three of you have stepped forward. We need 20, okay? So come on, okay? Uh, March the 11th, this Wednesday night, 6.30 in this very room. Seth will be here. Come and listen and hear and pray and think through What's God doing in my life? Could I give a help there for three months or for six months or for nine months? Just be there and encourage and just by my presence help. So uh, join in that meeting on Wednesday night. And then obviously the renewed store uh, still going well and still a good thing to have moved our location. And we're excited for that there. And then you guys who are doing Rooted, press in deep, okay? You're getting to some of the critical weeks in Rooted. And we're excited to hear the stories of renewal and faith and just Christ moving among us. So, yeah. And as for COVID-19, uh, we'll, we'll take our part as a staff and as a church leaders to make sure that we're taking the necessary precautions. And we'll take the counsel from local health officials and from, S, from, C, from CDC to make sure that our campus remains a healthy place for you to come and worship and uh, we encourage you, if you're not well, sick, stay away, okay? Don't infect us all, okay? Uh, but uh, let's, let's be precautious together, and uh, we'll keep this campus safe and healthy, and we'll see what comes in the coming weeks. So, uh, yeah, final preach in consumed. What's sucking the life out of you? And this is a final preach on that series before we get to Easter. And you've got a card sitting on your seat there, and take the invite card and uh, mem memorize the dates. We're having a run-in with three Sundays, including Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to preach about the blood. We're going to sing about the blood of Jesus. We're going to do some old-time religion for a few Sundays as we lead up to Easter, and just think through what is Easter Sunday and how we get to Easter Sunday through understanding more of the crucifixion and the death of Christ and all that that means. And, uh, you know, Easter is our turn. It's the one time of the year. It's the most holy time in the year for the Christian calendar. And it's our turn to celebrate. And we're going to talk about why Christians get really excited about Easter. And uh, we'll get there through a journey uh, that will take us to the cross and to his death as well as to his resurrection. And we're looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to John leading us in some of those uh, hymns and songs that we used to sing about the cross, about his death, about the blood of Christ. And we're going to preach that and try to understand it in a fresh way, okay? So get ready for those preachers. Uh, but let's finish off with consumed. When you boil it all down, idolatry is a mistake about reality. So stick with me for the first few minutes, okay? Uh, see, see, here's how it works for you and me at the philosophical level, okay? Uh, we, have, we have a crying need to be in control of our lives. And that's understandable. That's not wrong. But we are not in control of our lives. And for our egos to survive, we become dishonest about reality to make us feel that we are more and more in control, but we're not. And we twist reality. And I see that played out uh, nearly every single day uh, by leaders, by fathers, 
by people in business, by proud people. Perhaps the best commentary on our illusionary living is a book on political theory written by uh, the philosopher named Dr. Seuss. And he wrote a story about someone who was very much mistaken about how in control of his life he was. And if you know the writings of Dr. Seuss, you'll know this story, Yertle the Turtle. And Yertle rules, or so he thinks, over a pond of turtles. And one day, Yertle decides that he needs to extend his kingdom and went out a decree that all the turtles should be stacked up to become Yertle's throne that he could sit on on the, on, the, on, on the top. And so the king lifts his hands and the whole pond scrambles to obey, first dozens and then hundreds, and Yertle gets higher and higher and higher. And Yertle thought that his throne was secure as a throne could be. But it came to pass that at the bottom of the turtle stack, there was an obscure powerless turtle named Mac, Scottish turtle. <laughs> and as Dr. Seuss writes, the plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped. And his burp shook the throne of the king. And Yertle the turtle had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Yertle together again. Yeah, even if you are Yurtle VIP, or Yurtle MVP, or Yurtle PhD, or Yurtle CEO, or Yurtle BMOC, big man on campus, you're just one burp away from a mistaken reality. And we live mistaken about reality. And to make us feel better, we assign powers to an object of our imagination to get us what we want, which is control of our lives. And our lives, we hope, will turn out the way that we want them to turn out by this mistaken reality. And so we bow down. We bow down to idols of busyness or idols of our family or idols of pretense or idols of comparison. And we think that the idols exist to serve us. But in truth, the problem with idolatry is that we begin to serve our idols and we are trapped and the idol sucks the life right out of us. So we make an idol of our work and we work so long and so hard that it ruins our health, it ruins our marriage, it ruins our family life. We make an idol out of money and we act unethically in order to get more of that money. And cycles begin that are unhealthy cycles. We make an idol out of love. And we allow our lover to exploit us or even abuse us. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. A slave to whatever idol you're bowing down to, even if the idol is yourself. Real interesting, uh, small aside here, okay? I've got two asides this morning, okay? Here's the first aside. Uh, real interesting. In the Old Testament, the major portrayal of idol worshippers is that they are blind and deaf. They have ears but can't hear. They have eyes but can't see. 
Psalm 115, Psalm 135, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Jesus referred to it regarding the Pharisees and their legalistic religion, that they had ears but can't hear, eyes but can't see. And it's portrayed this way because you and I know that life is being sucked out of us. We are becoming consumed, but we don't do anything about it. And we know this. I mean, if you're following after money or ambition or position, you know that life's being pulled out of you. But we allow the idol to ruin our lives, even although we know that it's ruining our lives. And so, to the bystander looking on as we ruin our lives, despite the loud signals and despite the warning lights flashing, we carry on acting in behaviors that are so unhealthy and so destructive to our beings. Therefore, the observer, the bystander, he assumes that we must be blind or we must be deaf and we can't see or hear the warning lights, the alarm bell ringing. And how many times have you seen people do that? Of course, not you, but the person sitting next to you, you know that they take on behaviors and actions that you know are unhealthy and distracting and not what God would want them to do, and they seem to know it but keep doing it. So, I want to finish this series by taking us to a story in the Old Testament, and we're going to read this story as we go. It's in Genesis chapter chapter 29, and it features a young man by the name of Jacob. And I want to read and unpack something of the story of Jacob as we think about our idols and not being consumed as we seek to live our lives. And some of you, some of my learnings on this topic uh, comes from Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, which uh, he tackles this story. And some of my thoughts come from that book as I've processed it as I traveled the past couple of weeks uh, trying to avoid people with coughs and things like that there. So, we're going to read a fascinating story, and uh, the way the story is told, that alone makes it fascinating. You want to read Genesis 29 and Genesis 30, okay? Uh, But I want to look at this story to help us see how bowing down to idols makes us slaves, and try to understand how we can get away from that. So, uh, it features a young man called Jacob. And in chapter 29 of the book of Genesis, as we meet Jacob at this stage in the story, his life is in ruins. He's lost his family. He's lost his inheritance. He would never see his mother and his father alive again. And at this point, Jacob was cynical and Jacob was bitter. Life had done that to him. And so he decides that he wants to spend some time in an area where his relatives were from, hoping maybe to connect up with some of his relatives. And he meets his uncle, Uncle Laban, and Uncle Laban hires him as a shepherd. But then Laban sees he has management ability, and so he offers him a management job. And he says to him, like, just because your family doesn't mean that I shouldn't pay you, name your price. So, Genesis chapter 29, verse 1, Jacob moved on and came to the land of the eastern people, and he sees a flock of sheep lying, etc., etc., and swing down to verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, should you work for me for nothing because you are my relative? And the answer is no. 
Tell me what your wages should be. And Jacob names one price. And the price is Rachel, Laban's daughter. And it says, now Laban had two daughters. The older one was named Leah and the younger one, Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel had a lovely figure and beautiful appearance. Since Jacob had fallen in love with Rachel, he said, I'll serve you seven years in exchange for your youngest daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, I'd rather give her to you than to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked for seven years to acquire Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because his love for her was so great. <laughs> Pause, okay. Like the Hebrew text says literally that Rachel had a great figure. <laughs> but the translators want to gerate it, so, you know, they couldn't say she was hot, okay? Um, but Jacob was in love. In fact, he was so in love that he offered seven years' wages for her. I'll work for Laban for seven years so that you can pay me by giving me your daughter's hand in marriage. Now, in Near Eastern culture, it was usual to pay a price for your bride, a dowry, a dowry. Uh, short aside number two. Uh, when I was visiting a friend in Kenya, I prayed with him before I flew, and his story is a tragic story, and I'm going to keep his name anonymous just for his protection. His mother died when he was born, and then his father died just before he finished high school. And he managed still to finish high school, and then he met a girl. And he married this girl, and only after marrying her did he discover that she was HIV positive, AIDS. And this led to him being HIV positive, and the child that they had was also HIV positive. Tragically, his wife died. And here's where the story for me adds a huge other layer of pain and suffering. In Kenya, if you marry, you do a legal ceremony and you're wed. But there's also what's known as the traditional ceremony. And that traditional ceremony involves paying a dowry to your bride's family for you to get your bride. And it's calculated by the uncles of both families sitting together and bartering. And more or less, the value is worked out at the amount of earnings that the family are going to lose when the daughter leaves them to go to marry the new husband. And if you don't pay the dowry while you're legally married, should your wife die, the children that she bore you don't belong to you as the father. They are returned back to the wife's family as a surety until the dowry is paid. So for my friend, he, he hadn't paid the dowry. He couldn't afford the dowry. And so he lost his mother. He lost his father. He lost his wife. And tragically, he lost his only, his only child. And that's just wrecked his world. Poverty, extreme poverty, is so brutal. It has layers of it. 
that are tragic. And it always destroys. And our work is to bring the gospel, which brings life and hope, the kingdom of God to earth. In fact, he came to meet with me, and he said, even him coming to meet with me, he had to buy, pass by three people who he owed money to, and he couldn't afford to pay back the debt. And he was at risk of his life even coming to meet with me. And his debt was $70. That's all. But he couldn't pay it. There's this, this constant work. This is, this is a brutal arena that this church is involved in. Don't be, don't be misled by the beautiful little faces and the smiles. They live in brutality caused by poverty. And I'm so thrilled that you guys are with us. Thank you, Janet, for coming. Thank you, Katrina, and others who are going to come in June and some coming in September. And yeah, It's a constant work. But here's my friend, and he hadn't paid a dowry, and he no longer has his son. The tragedy of it. Now, back to Jacob, okay, and him paying a dowry to Rachel. He offered seven years' wages. <laughs> extremely high, okay? This was an enormous price. Like, it's common in Kenya that maybe you would pay one to two years salary. So, I mean, think about it. That's why they can't afford the dowry. You know, even though they're maybe only getting paid to what, two or three hundred dollars a month, maybe. Multiply that out by 24, that's a lot of money. How do you live paying a dowry for two years? So, Jacob pays a dowry of seven years wages. Like, this woman, Rachel, she must have been like really hot. Like, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones hot or something like that there. I don't, you know, or whatever you works for you Yanks. I don't know what it is, okay? But no matter how hot she was, seven years was not a good idea for her. Wait, way too long. Not a good idea for Jacob. He was going to be a slave and work for solid seven years. And the only guy winning was his trickster uncle. Laban. Jacob should have walked from this deal. Or he should have worked it down to maybe two years. Normally, dowries in ancient near culture were one year's wages. Never seven. Seven years of wages. Why? Like, as you read the story and you understand how much a dowry would normally be, one year's wage, why was Jacob willing to agree to seven years' wage. Why? Well, his life was empty. That's why. He'd never had the love of his father. His beloved mother was dead. So was her love. And as Jacob looked at his life, here's what he said. If I had her, finally something would be right in my miserable life. If I had her, it would fix everything. When I get Rachel, I'll finally be happy. And so, everything about Jacob, about his future, about his happiness, about his fulfillment, about his forgetting of the past, about his canceling out his failures, his father's failures, everything about him as a man, especially in a male-dominant honor and shame culture, everything was fixed on Rachel. He had lived in the shadow of his brother Esau, who could do no wrong and got everything. He had been downgraded. He had been ignored. He'd even been despised by his own father. He owned no land. He had no business. He had no means to look after himself. His status was zero. Honor was gone. Shame was what he carried. Seven years, 
Was it seven years for love? Perhaps. But probably more likely, it was seven years for redemption. Rachel was not his love. Rachel was his Savior. You see, we all want to be heroes. We all want to feel that our life mattered in the end, that we've done something. Here's this, this is either self-revelation or confession. I don't know which one it is, but I would say that the dominant emotion or the dominant urge that I have is that I wake up most days thinking there's more I can do. There's greater impact I can have. And that thought, along with me being too busy, which was my first confession back when we started this series, those two things can consume me. They suck the life out of me. And if it needs me to work for seven years for my scheming uncle, or if it's seven years for my scheming credit card company, or if it's seven years for my scheming boss, or if it's work all hours for the next many years to get noticed, if it's jump from this job to that job to this job to that job to drive my success, if it's send the kids to this school and this college and me borrow to make that happen, so be it. We all want to be heroes. We all want to have our junk redeemed. We want to be somebody. Seven years, we'll do it. We'll do it. So here's, I've got one question this morning. Just one. It's a long way to go for one question. Who's your Laban? Who are you willing to serve to get your Rachel, your redemption. Think that. Don't, don't, don't skip over that. You drill down deep into that. Who's your Laban? Now, the story continues. Consumed by feelings of Rachel will solve everything, the seven years go quickly by, cold showers and all, okay? But Laban has figured something out. Laban's figured out that this guy, Jacob, was sold out to Rachel and he could abuse him even more. Idols have their pimps, middlemen who work the deal. Laban's. Pimps always demand more. Well, look at verse 21. Finally, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my time of service is up. He's worked for seven years. I want to have marital relations with her. Well, you can read what that means, okay? You can think that one through, okay? So Laban invited all the people of that place and prepared a feast. In the evening, he brought his daughter Leah to Rachel to Jacob, and Jacob had marital relations with her. In the morning, Jacob discovered it was Leah. 
So Jacob said to Laban, what in the world have you done to me? Didn't I work for you in exchange for Rachel? Why have you tricked me? Is it not our custom here, Laban replied, to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn? Complete my older daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one too in exchange for seven more years of work. (laughs) Jacob was drunk, inebriated from the festivities. And when he woke up the next morning, he discovered he'd consummated his marriage, but to the wrong girl. Not to Rachel, but to her older, ugly sister, Leah. That's what the text says, verse 17. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form. Some suggest this means that Leah was cross-eyed or literally unsightly in some way. The point is clear. Leah's not the haughty. Rachel is. And her father knew he'd struggled to get Leah off his hands. And for years he wondered how he was going to get rid of her. And Laban found his solution. And so he tricked Jacob into marrying his older daughter. (laughs) Like, I didn't find this at the newsstand as you check out, okay, in the supermarket magazine. This is in the Bible. Pull it to a side for a few minutes. There's more in this story than we can look at. But, you know, we could stick with Jacob and ask, why did he fall for this? And why would he work another seven years for Rachel? And only one word can come to mind, and that's the word addict. He was addicted. He was addicted to loving Rachel, not out of love, but out of redemption. And this love narcotic led him to foolish and destructive choices. Addiction is not only liquor. So now, in the story, Leah becomes central in the narrative. She's the girl that nobody wants. Nobody loves. Leah, even more, has a hollow in her heart even as big, if not bigger, as the hollow in Jacob's heart. And now Leah, in the narrative, begins to try to fill that hollow, and she tries to do it something similar to how Jacob has tried to fill his hollow. Put your hope in something or someone as your Savior. And for her, it was children. If she has children, Jacob will love her, and her life will be complete even more. She'll have something that our hot sister doesn't have, double sweetness. And so, in the narrative, Leah becomes a baby machine. Baby one, baby two, baby three, baby four, all boys and all in succession. But Jacob still loves Rachel more than Leah. And so, to please his true love, Jacob's morals head south, and he sleeps with Rachel's maidservant, trying to give her a child. And then Leah becomes barren, and so she got Jacob to sleep with her maidservant to give her more children. And something big is happening in the text. You want to read chapter 30, okay? The narrative spirals down and down and down and down and down. Jacob, Leah, Rachel, 
all of them in the story are screwing up life. They are doing what God would not want done. None of them are models of spirituality or integrity. And you ask, why? Surely Scripture is supposed to show us how to live well and how to live right and how to live holy and godly lives. And surely the characters of Scripture, particularly the patriarchs, are meant to show us men of faith and holiness. But the Bible was not written with God at the top of the ladder saying, if you try hard, summon up your strength and live right, you can make it up to where I'm at. Instead, the narrative of the Bible repeatedly shows weak people who don't deserve God's grace, who don't even seek it and don't appreciate it after they even have it to the point that the Scripture is showing us how our lives can be different and in a new direction. And this is very good news, because if you're really honest with yourself, in the story you're either Jacob or Leah or Rachel. You're one of them. Or maybe you're Laban. But you can bet your bottom dollar that you're one of these characters. And your life is not what you thought your life would be. And the habits that you have, you're surprised at. And the patterns of behavior that you've shown over many years, you've wondered, how could I ever be a Christian? Am I really a follower of Christ? This is the gospel. This is the good news. It's here in the text. Through all of our lives, there runs a cosmic disappointment. We all want something that cannot be had in this world. We all know things in this world never fulfill their promises. All of us live with huge hopes, dreams. But in the morning, it's always Leah, never Rachel. Our idols do not satisfy us. They don't quench the thirst. They don't fill the soul. They don't heal the aches. No person, no job, no looks, no possessions, no success, not even the best of these can give our souls what our souls long for and ache for. And here's what you and I need to run to and grab with both hands. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the probable explanation is that I was made for another world, something supernatural, something eternal. No human relationship, no human endeavor, no human high, no human habit can bear the burden of Godhood. 
Everything we run after will either decay, be imperfect, or fail. You cannot find true life putting the weight of your deepest hopes and longings on an idol, whether that idol is a wife or a husband or a family or a career or a money or religion or self-addiction. But the invitation from God, the invitation from God is to replace the idol. You don't just repent of having an idol. You don't just ask for forgiveness. Idols need to be replaced. And the replacing that needs to happen is Jesus becoming so big in my life, so big in my, in my heart, that there is no room for another idol. Jesus needs to become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. This is why I loathe churches that get Jesus wrong. And we present Jesus as the supreme legalist, the killjoy, the one who's always just critical and negative about you and your life and judging you. That's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. And this Jesus of the Scriptures, He calls on us to have a life that, that needs to be lived out with all of its fullness and, and it's loud and, and his adventure to live life with him is so challenging and so compelling and his invitation to do life with him is so adventurous. To deal with our idols, we need to fall in love with Jesus again or if that's not language that works for you, the vision of life with him needs to again overwhelm us. Because if Jesus fills our hearts, our deepest hopes are satisfied. If Jesus fills our minds, our deepest ambitions are met. And if Jesus fills our souls, our deepest longings are satisfied. If He becomes bigger our idols loosen their hold. And with energy, and with determination, and with focus, and with passion, we need to reorient the entire focus of our lives towards Him and His call upon us, a call to greatness, a call to good things, and big things, and bold things. Can you remember the words that we quoted as we ended the preach at the beginning of our Christmas season? It went like this here. He, Jesus, is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher who ever lived. He is the greatest mind that ever thought. He sparked the greatest movement that has ever spread. He offered the greatest gift that has ever been given. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone grows more present with each passing year. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And I need to let that Jesus define my reality. And when He 
defines my reality. In the morning when I wake, it's not Leah, and it's not even Rachel. But when I wake in the morning with Jesus defining my reality, it is the most content and fulfilled and saved and renewed and redeemed and restored and reconciled complete version of Gilbert, of you, that there ever could be. And there's no idol. The way to replace the idol that's sucking the life out of you is to get a greater vision of this Jesus that's calling you and inviting you to do life with Him. And so for four weeks, we're going to unpack a little bit of who that Jesus is. And the central tenet of the Christian faith that He, in all of His bigness, was willing to lay down His life for you to find life. So starting in two weeks' time, get ready to get a bigger vision of Jesus and shake off those idols and begin to live the life that He has for you. Let's stand for prayer. Father, Father, we each know that life so often happens and we're not in control. And we don't like that emotion. And so we try to grab control and we create idols that we think will bring us that control and that joy and that fulfillment. And this very minute, Lord, we ask that you would by your Spirit reveal to our souls what those idols are. We ask you, Lord, to speak into our hearts that you'd help us understand who are the Labans in our lives? And they hold power over us. And we serve them trying to get redemption, trying to find joy. Even as followers of you, we act as though our ears are deaf and our eyes are blind. But we thank you that there is a way forward. And we thank you for the gospel of your grace. And we thank you, Father, that even in Scripture, we see character after character who is messing up their lives, but they're not down and out. You still use them. You still fill them. You still lead them to your purposes. And we ask that your grace would overflow in our lives as we dig deep to see the biggerness of who Jesus is as in these next few weeks, we step forward, Lord, to understand all that he's done for us. May our vision of him grow bigger and bigger. And with that ever enlarging vision, may the idols diminish, lose their power, be tamed and be replaced. And that people in this congregation 
are no longer slaves to fear, but live free and redeemed. Come on this journey with us over these next few weeks, God, and shake us and move us and free us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.